Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon, then we are up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Thursday, the 30th of November. Coming up on the program, details on an alleged torture squad within the SANDF. We'll look at mine equipment maintenance after the Impala Platz tragedy. There's a new survey out on South African attitudes towards climate change as COP28 begins and why we're falling behind when it comes to renewable energy projects. Well, it's detailed and it makes for disturbing reading. The Open Secrets Organization has published an expose about military squads allegedly responsible for acts of torture and murder. That should be a military squad. The evidence, it says, implicates at least four units of the SANDF in crimes dating back to 2019. These are the Elite Special Forces Brigade, the Military Police, Defense Intelligence and Defense Legal Services. Henny van Furen with Open Secrets is with us now and let's try and break down a very complicated investigation. Henny, first of all, simplify it for us. What is alleged to have happened? Yeah, Jeremy, good day to you. Um, Open Secrets has been investigating for some time um, the involvement of special forces on the scene of this very serious uh, uh, alleged world crimes that took place, the abduction of individuals in the Mall of Africa late last year. Subsequently, a, a colonel in the Hawks, Franz Matipa, was investigating this and investigating special forces, and um, he was assassinated in August this year, and we've written about that. Um, sources have come to us, whistleblowers within the state, within the military and elsewhere, and have alleged that special forces, including some of the same individuals involved in that abduction in the Mall of Africa are involved in torture of individuals. It was concerning a, a, a different matter, a theft of weapons from the military base at the at Tabatswane, close to Tabatswane in late 2019. But what seems to have happened, Jeremy, is that um, the military, particularly special forces, crossed the line into civilian territory and went on the hunt for civilian suspects. So instead of calling in the SAPS, they went, found individuals, abducted them and, and kidnapped one in a particular instance that we're aware of, and in one instance tortured somebody at a military base, we're told by somebody who was on the scene, um, to the point that this uh, civilian, this individual, um, was murdered, who died on the scene after hours of mm. torture, of waterboarding, uh, etc., of the most gruesome manner. Um, and it involves a number of, of, uh, of special forces operatives. We've named some of them in the articles we've published in the Daily Maverick. And disturbingly, um, it does seem like this happened not only with the involvement of other arms of the service, but possibly in some instances, some of this, these abuses um, had at least the, the, the tacit approval of very senior high-ups, including a General Mbata, who was, uh, who was the current head, the chief of the army. What do we know about the Special Forces unit? Uh, unit? Can you give us a little bit more detail? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so special forces, you know, just just a very brief recap, a reminder um, to listeners were 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 known as the Reckies, um during the 1980s into the early 1990s. So the elite unit uh, during the apartheid military responsible for operating well behind enemy lines in the way that you have such special forces in most militaries around the world. Um, the particular there are currently um, two primary special forces units in South Africa, one in Saldana in the Cape. One in Palaborwa, uh, which does most of the overland activity and the air activity. Now, they're also operating in northern Mozambique, for example, in the DRC and elsewhere. It's this particular special forces unit. Um, uh, uh, this is the, the special forces five unit, which is based in Palaborwa, where we believe these individuals that have been involved in some of these uh, alleged crimes are drawn from. But they are certainly the elite soldiers, right, uh, Jeremy? They are trained to, to uh, with particular skills, not mm. only uh, working behind enemy lines, but um, but but obviously the ability to, um, you know, to, the ability to be able to sh- to you know to shoot people over a very long distance. Um, so they are are snipers um, and other skills that they have that so-called ordinary members mm. of the SANF would not have. And um, and importantly to note as well is that we've set up the the special forces in a democratic South Africa in such a way that they don't have um, they effectively report directly to the chief of the SANDF. So whereas the military police and the Navy and the Air Force all have their own chiefs who then report to the chief of the SANDF, special forces, if you like, are almost a unit on its own. It talks about the particular privileged status they have within the military, but obviously um, how important they are both to the military and to political leaders to, to, you know, to, to do the things that are required to, to be done. That's all well and good as long as they operate in the framework of the Constitution. Our argument is that the evidence suggests that they are operating outside of the rule of law, outside of the framework of the Constitution, and then anything is possible. And I think you've partly answered my next question, but apart apart from the perversity and the horror around the allegations that have been made, why within the structure of the SANDF is the story so important? Mm. Well, you know, I think it's what's really important um, in in this, and I think, as you say, the horror... The human abuse, you know, once one has met people who have had suffered in this manner, one looks at these structures differently and, and, and has an appreciation for the impact this has on, on, on civilians' lives. But importantly, um, Jeremy, as well, is that um, in terms of, of the structure of the military, it is a deeply hierarchical um, um, organization. Mm. And that does mean that this idea that they are just simply rogue actors there are certainly forces that will look like paramilitary forces within the military, but it doesn't. Ju- people can't just operate and do their own thing, so to speak. It is a top-down structure. The question is, who else knows in the chain of command? And I think that is what we think, at least uh, in our work, is that this might point to the fact of the silence around the assassination of people like Franz Matipa. I mean, consider this. The prime suspects in the murder of a top um, Hawks official of the military of the same country. And there's not one word from the Minister of Police, from the Minister of Defense or the President. In fact, the media hasn't even gone to go and ask them those questions outside of what we've published. And that's worrying because I think that silence suggests um, that there may be an understanding at least amongst some of um, the actors of what's on the go. Um, and you know, I, I think that we need to be making as much noise mm. as possible before activity like this becomes normalized. What's the broad motive here, do you think? 
It's a question, you know, we are we are often asked. Um, I, I think that, you know, when we look at these incidents in, in isolation, it is a sense of impunity that the, that the rule of law doesn't apply. And in each particular instance, we can do what we wish. Um, we can't point this down. It's not one particular singular motive. But let us just consider for a moment, and, and to be very clear, Jeremy, we don't have evidence of this, but nothing stops groups like these from eventually becoming involved themselves in taking out, if you like, political opponents or for that matter becoming involved in organized criminal Mm. activity and those are things we should consider seriously even though we can't say at the moment that it is what is happening but you know i think that points towards um what opportunities there are when impunity is allowed to take hold in the manner that we fear is happening right right now that that impunity obviously is a huge threat to democracy henny van furen thank you very much indeed from the open secrets organization You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. All right, we've spent quite a bit of time this week talking about this story, so let's return to our national power crisis and MoneyWeb writing this week that when stage six load shedding came to bite unexpectedly, many of us are pointing fingers at various politicians asking if their assurances that load shedding would by now or soon be something of the past were misleading. So where do we stand right now? Monique Leroux is with us, the University of Stellenbosch's Centre for Renewable and Sustainable Energy Studies. And firstly, Monique, what the then is your understanding of the current situation and I wonder whether we can actually believe the load shedding schedules that we're being given. So that's a very um, controversial question because people get very hot under the collar when you talk about that and I, it's understandably so but the fact is I sort of stand behind Eskom because they've done very well in getting proper load shedding schedules out and um, implementing them a- as necessary. And then where the ball has um, dropped sometimes is with municipalities where they've got different schedules and they implement load shedding differently to, to the way Eskom does it. And then there's this um, mismatch between Eskom is doing and what the municipality is doing. And then people get very upset and say that Eskom is not doing what they're supposed to be doing when it's actually the municipalities who are getting confused or implementing different schedules. So I don't think it's something that Eskom is doing wrong necessarily or that they're trying to pull wool over people's eyes. It's just that that it's getting lost in communication between Eskom and the municipalities. Do you think it's a good idea then to devolve power cuts to metros? Surely it should be handled from one central point. It would make more sense in terms of communication and making sure that it gets rolled out smoothly, but I think that would put a, a large burden on Eskom to do all the switching. They're already struggling. I used to work in the Eskom control centre many years ago, and I can tell you that when you get to stage four, stage five, stage six, you run around like crazy to get everything switched off and switched on. So if that had to be done all by Eskom, that would add a huge burden to them to get that done in the right amount of time. And then also we've seen a, a large push by municipalities recently for them to do this um, switching themselves because then they um, have got more control over what happens in the um, network and if they've got additional generation like city of cape town they can actually have lower levels of load shedding and that's why municipalities are keen to do their own shedding because they want to add their own generation to the network so that they can save on one two three stages of load shedding when it's implemented mm. monique could you describe to me the stress that people in those or in that control center undergo and how the switching is actually done are you able to take us inside Yes, yeah, so Eskom has got a control system that's very well run and I can give them credit for that, um, that where you can see the whole system at your desk on your computer, you can see every piece of equipment there, every breaker, 
um, every transformer, every line is live there and you can actually sit at your computer and switch it on and off. Not all the plants on the network but has that capability, but all the high level from, I would say, from 66 to 132 kV and maybe at some lower levels they've got that capability. So it's actually just the controllers that sit at their desk and switch it on and off. So you've got that schedule in front of you. But as you can imagine, if you've got more um, customers that you need to switch on or there's more buttons that you need to press and it gets very busy for say schedule four or schedule mm. five and six load changes there's just a lot more customers that you need to switch on and off and keep track of what you've switched on so that it can be switched off so they start on the hour and then they'll first switch off the first batch of customers for the next state and then after they've switched the, that batch off they'll start switching on the, the ones that were on on the schedule of the previous one it sounds unbelievably complicated. Uh, a lot of talk in Johannesburg about uh, having moved to stage eight because people have gone beyond 12 hours of load shedding in a single day. Mm. Explain that to me. So I think City Power sort of came out of the wash this week after people started complaining and they said that it was their fault that they implemented their schedules incorrectly. So it wasn't Eskom's fault. Many things are their fault, but in this case, we can try and excuse them that it was something that the municipality did wrong. And we've also tried to keep track of how the municipalities do their switching and how their schedules work. And honestly, I can say that it, it gets very confusing because each municipality do their own implement their own schedules from Eskom they only so if it's stage one load shedding Eskom will tell the municipality you need to reduce your output by um, five five percent so for each stage of load shedding is five five percent and then they can decide within the municipality where they want to cut that five percent so Eskom only wants to see a five percent reduction on their network and that it's up to them to decide how they want to cut so if if they want to cut customers off or some of them for for a longer time and keep others on for a longer time it's it's up to the municipality and Eskom doesn't have control over that monique i just want to pivot the conversation quickly if we can and i'm wondering to myself why we're not moving swiftly enough with renewable energy do you really think there's an appetite in this country where are we failing here so there is definitely an appetite. The market is so ready. We've got so many projects that are absolutely re- shovel ready to start construction. The big delay has been on government side uh, throughout the years. We've seen uh, sort of the reprogram starting and then stopping and then the market responding to that, unfortunately, with a lot of uncertainty because we don't know when it's going to continue. And then uh, this year specifically, we've been waiting for the next bid window to be announced with lots of anticipation and it's just been very quiet from government side. And we think currently it is due to the fact that there is a big limit on grid capacity. So most of the projects in previous years were developed in Northern Cape, Western Cape, Eastern Cape where there are good wind and solar resources. Mm. But unfortunately the grid hasn't been upgraded to sustain all that um, growth in renewable energy in that areas. And Eskom is sitting with a big problem at the moment in that they can't connect any more projects in, in those areas. So yeah, I think they're trying to scr- uh, scramble in the back a little bit to see what they can do to get more renewable energy on the grid the way the grid is at the moment without doing substantial investment and upgrades on the grid, which is very costly and takes a lot of time. So I think until they've like, um, sorted out that issue and come up with new ideas and new plans and uh, critically started uh, investment into the grid, we are going to see difficult, the difficulty in getting new renewables onto the grid. Monique LaRue, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories.
Now, as we still digest the Impala Platts mine tragedy, the health and safety within the mining sector itself is again being called into question. Mining operations and machines, including drills, trucks and processing equipment, vary in nature and obviously complexity. Jan Els is product manager at Eaton and is suggesting that something called predictive maintenance for mines is crucial. And he joins us now. Eaton, by the way, is a diversified power management company. So a very warm welcome to you. First of all, are you suggesting that in some ways mines are taking their eye off the maintenance ball? Ah, good afternoon, Jeremy. Yeah, so I think, you know, a, a lot of uh, people out there, you know, a very easy answer would be to do preventative maintenance. Um, I think it's a very easy statement. However, there's a lot of, a lot of complexity behind that statement uh, for our customers nowadays. Um, you know, our companies, our customers, um, you know, they really do struggle with, you know, something like load shedding. Production is always a a very important portion of delivering product to customers or their customers on their side. Um, and I think, you know, for management to take a decision uh, to shut down a plant for maintenance, you know, to consider the financial impact to that, the financial impact for for um, the business uh, is always very difficult. Um, and so you, you're a, suggesting, Johan, that, that, that load shedding in many respects has made this problem even worse. It, it makes sense, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I've, I look at our customers and I see that customers, you know, they take decisions to rather run productions, the times that they do have power available. Um, and when they do know that it's a potential, you have this, this con- constant standoff between your your production staff or your production line and your maintenance teams. Now they know, our customers do know what is needed, but they also have to be, you know, strategic in taking in a decision on, do I run my production and hope everything is okay? Or do I shut it down? Um, I've already had a shutdown, for example, because of load shedding. Do I now shut it down and, and do the maintenance first? And, and it's, and I it's think when that's you. Really difficult. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And it's when you hope that everything's okay that creates the potential for tragedy, doesn't it? That, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, you know, you have a tendency that something is on and it's working, but, you know, there's a lot happening inside a piece of equipment that you need to. Uh, you could monitor it or, you know, it could uh, drop you or, or, you know, Mm. sort of fail at any moment. So predictive maintenance, I think, is self-explanatory, but how does the concept then, with reference to mines specifically, contribute to overall safety of of workers, of staff? I I, I think there's definitely some technology advances, you know, um, and, and a lot of these technology advances is is more than often lessons that we learn from incidents in the workplace or sort of lessons that we've learned from, uh, you know, failures or events, um, typically from what we've seen now. You know, as an OEM, uh, we normally uh, take that when we produce product, uh, we design and test that product, uh, you know, to the latest specifications. These specifications is also driven by feedback from our customers, feedback that, sort of incidents and accidents that happened in industry. Um, what's also very important for us at Eaton is, you know, we have a big focus on providing our customers with a product that's safe, a product that is uh, reliable to operate. And 
you know, nowadays even more so, you know, product with a low maintenance uh, feature, you know. So the less maintenance mm -hmm. they need to do is, is uh, to an advantage to our customers. So that, that would um, make sense. So the final question then is that I presume a concept like this uh, would be difficult possibly to integrate into existing mining operations. There is solutions that is available to, to integrate into existing uh, solutions. Um, but you also need to consider that if you are looking at, you know, more advanced product, I mean, a lot of our mines have been here for many years. A lot of our mines have, have got old product with old technology in it. Um, newer technology is definitely available. Um, it's not that easy always to have the budget for it. And as we know, and as we see in our industry, and we often see it that budgets are moved, you know, within the, mm. the operations from, you know, where they did plan on having maybe a replacement of equipment and a full maintenance schedule, then, you know, something else happens and they move those budgets out and they reallocate it to a more important uh, requirement at that time. Um, Right, Jan, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for the insight. Jan Else is product manager at Eaton Africa. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Well, from mining, let's move to the environment now. And ahead of the start of COP28, there's a new climate barometer survey out by a global technology company, and, and it reveals new insights around South Africans' attitudes and behaviors towards climate change, uh, the imminent climate crisis, and what action needs to be taken to make any sort of difference for the betterment of the environment. And I'm suspecting here, having read the report, that there is some good news Timothy Thomas, country manager of Epson EMEA, is uh, with us now. And firstly, Timothy, then broadly, how do South Africans feel about climate change? A lot of the, the survey feedback uh, came through in that over 30,000 respondents uh, participated in the survey. And within the South African context, climate change ranked as the third most important issue facing South Africans. That was behind poverty and, and, and inflation. And we fully understand that, you know, some of those challenges that we experience in South Africa today, but it was encouraging in the fact that people recognize the uh, looming effect of climate change. What was also uh, really interesting for us was this was the first survey that also took into account what we call the COP generation. So everyone born after 1995, when the first COP event was held, and the younger generation do see uh, climate change as something that can be solved within their lifetime. And that was encouraging. And I think, you know, that's one of the beauties of South Africa is that, you know, we are an optimistic nation by nature. And, and so the, the opportunity to make a change is, is mm. definitely there. Given the myriad challenges, Timothy, that this country faces, uh, third place is actually quite surprising. It is, um, but it does recognize uh, the fact that people are becoming more and more aware of climate change. And especially when in a country like South Africa, where we face regular power challenges, it is people do recognize the fact that we need to make changes in what we do, both in our personal lives as well as in our business lives. And the important thing is, you know, for, for everyone to make uh, a small contribution towards improving it. And, you know, when we talk about the power challenges, a lot of the technology that is being developed today, in particular within the IT printing sector, is around new technology 
technology which is uses a lot less energy so as an example for Epson uh, inkjet printers today they use 80% less electricity than the old laser devices which we've become accustomed to over the last 10 15 20 years and so by using newer technologies it really has helped shape uh, the opportunity for us to make changes which can only benefit uh, both South Africa as well as the world as well does the survey in any way look at progress in terms of climate change mitigation it does you know a lot of that is also focused both on a personal level and what people do today in their personal lives so when i so when we talk about the use of single use plastics as an example uh, when we did the first survey in 2021 only 63% of people really looked at single use plastics and and how they use it in their day to day lives 2 years later 85% of people are now being a lot more conscious of single use plastics in the same way as they are about recycling that increased from 62% right up to 71% and so people are becoming a lot more conscious in their personal lives but also within their professional and business environments as well businesses are recognizing the need to become more focused around eco-friendly devices devices which produce a lot less waste um as opposed to some of the older technologies and that's a very noble sentiment but i'd contend that that take up is very patchy though isn't it it is all about taking it bit by bit and we are seeing uh, some really good progression in terms of public sector in particular as well as within corporate uh, south africa that businesses are becoming more responsive towards these greener technologies um adoption we would always like it to be faster and i think that is both uh, in our personal lives and our professional lives but we are encouraged by the fact that there is definitely a concerted effort from business in south africa towards these greener more eco-friendly technologies but it's not always mandatory when it comes to procurement policy though is it that's correct jeremy unfortunately none of these are at the moment gazetted by government however you know we are encouraged by the fact that business are beginning to make the changes themselves and i think you know that's the important point behind you know climate change is the ability for us to be able to do and make an impact doesn't matter how great or small it is but as long as everyone starts to make a concerted effort hopefully in the future you know that will become a more stringent mandate but in the meantime it really is about business making a progressive change and critical in that respect then that surveys like this and others i guess uh, influence government policies and social movements but uh, you rightly say it's got to be a whole lot more accelerated that's correct and you know i think that's the other area which we really are encouraged by with cop 28 commencing in dubai today is the fact that there's also a greater focus around the younger generation uh, at cop 28 because uh, ultimately a lot of the decisions which we make today will we will only feel the effect 5 10 15 20 years later and so by having the younger generation that cop generation involved in these key moments in time will really help us accelerate uh, the change in the future as well Timothy Thomas thank you very much indeed Money Web at midday for all your up to date stories
And let's end the Thursday program with this. Max Price is former Vice-Chancellor and Principal of the University of Cape Town and is my next guest on the Fix SA podcast, which drops tomorrow. His book, Statues and Storms, describes his tenure at the institution during a transformative period in South African higher education. In this excerpt, he talks about the importance of planning when it comes to leadership. I think it's context-specific, so... One can sometimes come into a situation where a lot is broken, a lot is going wrong, and the vision has to be about fixing things and getting buy-in from that perspective. I'll come back to that if you want me to, but the context you're quoting of 2008 when I became Vice-Chancellor was the other scenario where actually things are going very well. The university is very popular. It's achieving tremendous international results with fundraising, with research, with its reputation, with attracting staff. And there to come with a vision can be more difficult because one often faces the reaction from the people who have built the institution up to where it is. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think that's really the wrong approach. Uh, If you wait for something to be broken before you start fixing it, then you get exactly into the ESCOM situation of not thinking ahead, not thinking about how populations will grow, how needs will change, how maintenance needs to be done. And sometimes it's more difficult to produce a vision for an organization that is riding the crest of a wave in a way. What I did and what I think needs to be done in a situation like that, firstly, quite a lot of reading. One needs to know where's the world going, uh, what was the view around, in this case, higher education, And this was a time when technology was producing, starting to produce a fundamental shift in the possibilities of doing online education compared to -to face-to-face education. And there was the growth of online courses and degrees and things called MOOCs, the massive open online courses. Mm. And it seemed to me that since the traditional universities in South Africa had defined themselves exclusively as face-to-face institutions, they were being left behind. And so reading about that, and then the second step was to visit institutions that I considered leading institutions globally, and uh, both in the developing and developed world, and see what the thinking was there, because there's, one also doesn't want to waste time reinventing a wheel or falling into the same, making the same mistakes that others have already made and learned from. And it's seldom that one is absolutely at the cutting edge and no one has done this before. So I think... The first step is reading and getting a sense of that environment. The second is actually visiting and hearing what you often don't hear in the glowing reports that institutions write about themselves or that newspapers write. So to find out what were all the mistakes made before getting to the point where one could uh, develop the vision, what were the things that did not get reported and did not get shouted about. Mm. And then the third step is about bringing people along with you because in most institutions, Although you, in some senses you lead from the front, you provide ideas, but the institutions require buy-in. They require people to share your vision, shape it, and be willing to own it in a way that they don't feel they're following orders. They feel like they are driving the change. And to get that, uh, sometimes you need to take people along the same path of learning. For example, in my previous job as Dean of the Wits Health Science Faculty, We needed to do a radical reform of the curriculum and of how teaching was done. And I thought that Australia was significantly ahead of us. And I took a group of six professors, the heads of the major departments, with me on a 
look-see visitor of some of the institutions in Australia because I thought they wouldn't simply take it from me. I didn't have enough authority. It was too early in my term to have earned enough trust that they would say, we'll follow you, you lead. I needed them to be persuaded. They needed to see uh, others that who they did hold in, in high regard, how they had done it. They needed to see a wide range of different ways of doing something and recognize that the way we were doing it was not the only way or necessarily the best way. And then come back. So it was finding ways of generating that buy-in to make them feel that they were the leaders as well. And then when you need to mobilize a much larger group, you know, you can't always take people on overseas jaunts for something like that, then various forms of workshops, retreats, scenario uh, planning. The most difficult thing, especially in an institution that is working well, is to get people to think where it could be better or what might go wrong in the future and to deal with some, to, to confront them with scenarios so that they can um, contribute to a solution. Lessons in Leadership. Dr. Max Price and the Full Fix SA podcast drops tomorrow morning right here on MoneyWeb. Other stories on our radar just before we go. News 24 reporting that the city of Johannesburg plans to spend more than 2 million rand on an end-of-the-year ceremony. And Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State under Richard Nixon, who became one of the most prominent and controversial figures of U.S. foreign policy, has died at the age of 100. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we are up as a podcast. Goodbye to you and thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.